Acts chapter 15, verse 36. Sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, let us go back and visit the brothers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them, but Paul did not think it wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and left, commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. He went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. He came to Derbe and then to Lystra, where a disciple named Timothy lived, whose mother was a Jewess and a believer, but whose father was a Greek. The brothers at Lystra and Iconium spoke well of him. Paul wanted to take him along on the journey, so he circumcised him because of the Jews who lived in that area, for they all knew that his father was Greek. As they traveled from town to town, they delivered the decisions reached by the apostles and elders in Jerusalem for the people to obey. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and grew daily in numbers. Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. When they came to the border of Mysia, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to do that. So they passed by Mysia and went down to Troas. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, he got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Father, we thank you for the text of scripture this morning and we're just so glad to be here. We're so glad that you set the lonely in families and you've given us just salvation and forgiveness, that you've justified us, that we've received your spirit, that we have your word, that we are placed in this incredible family that you've adopted us into by your grace. And God, that you've given us promises for the future and that you wanna use us now, today, to expand your kingdom and to be a part of the great work you're doing in evangelizing people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Lord, as we study this text, I pray that you would fill my mouth and my heart in such a way that, that you're able to take what's so powerful already and God, that you would use it to, uh, to make personal application to our lives today. And so God, we wanna say thank you. Help me to teach and God, help us to learn and grow and be transformed. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. amen. I was thinking this morning as I was um, uh, considering this text and the introduction, I was remembering that uh, a movie that I just went and saw recently at the theaters. And you know, I'm, I'm beginning to uh, enjoy one part of the movie that a lot of people miss out on. I think there's certain people that as soon as the, the credits start, they're out of the theater and they don't know that for like the fi last five or I don't know, eight years or so, that movies now have trailers. And I know most of you probably know that. Um, I, I, I learned it only because I'm so cheap. I want to see everything that I can get out of this movie, including the music that goes to the very end. And then I stayed one time and I said, wow, the theater's empty and they got more movie going. And it's all the bloopers, you know, it's the outtakes of these movie cuts. And I really have come to enjoy those. In fact, when they, when they have a movie that, you know, that doesn't have it, I'm like, you know, where are the trailers? You know, what happened? Where are the bloopers? And, uh, and I've come to kind of enjoy those because what it does is it gives you a behind the scenes look 
at what actually happened in the production of the movie. The movie itself is all presented beautifully, it's all powerful and wonderful, but these trailers at the end are kind of like tell you, well, it, it wasn't always that easy, and they ran into some problems, and sometimes even giving the lines, the, the, the artists and the actors stumbled over these things repeatedly. And what we have in the text today is kind of the blooper trail. It's not, I mean, that's really a bad thing to say. I shouldn't say that about the Word of God. But what it does is it gives us a behind-the-scenes look at some of the challenges that are going on in the midst of this incredible outpouring of the Holy Spirit in reaching both Jew and Gentile with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we have about two or three little vignettes that take us back into the underworkings, the behind-the-scenes activity that's happening as Paul and Barnabas and others are distributing the word of God and the challenges that they face. And so it's really instructive because I've learned so much through this text and I'm praying this morning as we go through it that you'll uh, hopefully glean some helpful information for your own life as well as we learn what it's like on the mission field and that it's not always so easy and sometimes there are disagreements and sometimes there are misunderstandings and sometimes there's a parting of ways and that's what we're gonna see in the text today but by God's grace, we're gonna learn some things along the way as well. Now, you'll recall that, that uh, Paul and Barnabas, along with Judas and Silas, who were from Jerusalem, had been sent back to Antioch with a letter explaining to the church, this Gentile, predominantly Gentile church, that they didn't need to become Jews via circumcision in order to then step into the Christian life, but all they had to do was simply believe by faith and that they were born again and that they were a part of the family of God. There aren't two stages to coming to Christ. You don't have to have Christ plus anything else in order to be born again. And so Judas and Silas and, and uh, Paul and Barnabas take this letter back to Antioch and they, they declare what the council in Jerusalem has arrived at in their decision and the people just are ecstatic, you know, that they, they're not burdened by the, by the law that some of the Jewish believers who came from the line of the Pharisees were trying to impose on them. And so they were absolutely free. Now, this is where we pick it up in, in verse 36 of chapter 15. It says that sometime later, Paul and Barnabas decided to go back and visit the brothers. Uh, the word in the Greek is episkopos. Skopos, it's a compound word, epi, upon. Skopos is the word where we get our, our word scope, like telescope. A scope is something you look for, you examine something, you, you observe something through that. And so Paul and Barnabas wanted to go back to all the towns that they had previously visited on their first missions journey. They wanted to go back and see what God was doing. They wanted to see the condition of the church and they wanted to be a blessing to the church. And so they wanted to go back to all those places that they had preached the word and to see how the church was doing. And this is one of the things that, uh, that really blessed me as I saw Paul's heart again, uh, the pastor's heart, the under shepherd's heart. Paul doesn't just win people to Christ and plant a church and, and put a notch in his belt and then move on. Paul wants to make disciples. Paul wants to see the condition of the people. Paul wants to go back and care for this fledgling flock that, that, uh, that he was a part of giving birth to. And so he has this shepherd's heart to go back and to uh, take an interest in the, in the people that God used him to win to Christ. Um, I was thinking about 1 Thessalonians chapter uh, 3, verse 10, and we get a little bit of Paul's heart in this text as he's writing the church in Thessalonica. He said to them, Night and day we pray most earnestly that we may come and see you again and supply what is lacking in your faith. And so that was Paul's heart. He just had this pastor's heart. 
You know, the, the, the heart of a pastor, not just a pastor, but any Christian leader, is not to come over the top and to, and to put notches in the belt, but the heart is to come under and supply what's lacking and, and to do whatever you can to be a blessing to people around you. And here's the question I wanna ask you kind of right out of the gate, is that this isn't just for pastors or leaders or church planters. This is the heart that Jesus says is to be the mark of every, every true believer is that we have this desire to come and supply what's lacking in people around us. You know, part of the problem is, is that, and we're all wired the same way, is that there's a desire that God would supply what's lacking for us. But Paul had this desire, and that's part of the mark of, of growing maturity, is that you move from what you're lacking and what you want to what others are lacking and how you can be a part of meeting that need. And I, and I just wanna ask you a, a very simple question. Who has God put in your life that you can supply something that may be lacking in their spiritual life. Now, every one of us here has someone like that. There are people in your life that are either lacking salvation or if they're saved, they're lacking courage or lacking an understanding of basic doctrine or they're lacking friendship or they're lacking fellowship or, or just all kinds of things that we all, day to day, we just need people to be around us, encouraging us, building us up, strengthening us, helping us on our walk with God. And there are people in your life that the Holy Spirit has divinely orchestrated sovereignly for your joy as well as for the expansion and advancement of the kingdom that you should come alongside them like Paul does and think to himself, what can I do to supply what's lacking in this person's life? That's the heart of God. That's what he wants to do through your life and every person that claims the name of Jesus. And we see this shepherd heart of Paul. And I like to refer to it as under-shepherding, coming under and doing whatever's necessary uh, to help others around you. Well, interestingly, in verse 37, Barnabas loved the idea, and he right away made a decision. He made this decision evidently without talking to Paul, but the, the text tells us that he wanted to take a young man named John Mark. Now, John Mark, uh, we know quite a bit about him. Uh, he was actually Barnabas's cousin. He was the son of Mary, if you remember in... Um, in the earlier chapters in the book of Acts, when Peter was arrested and the house was praying at a woman's house named Mary and the, all the believers gathered and they were crying out for Peter. Remember, Peter knocked on the door, they wouldn't let him in and finally got in. Well, that was John Mark's mother's house. She evidently was a woman of some substantial means, quite wealthy, had a fairly uh, comfortable life. We know that he was born in Cyprus. We know that he was won to Christ by the influence of Peter. And he was introduced to us in the book of Acts chapter 12 when he went on the first missionary journey that Paul and Barnabas took. And on that first missionary journey in Pamphylia, Acts 13, 13, he bailed, he deserted. You know, he gave up, he quit, he walked. And Barnabas wanted to take John Mark on the second round of the very same circuit and the very same trip that they went on. Now it's interesting because this word in Greek, buleo, wanted, means that he resolved or determined to take John Mark. So this is part of the problem that I see right out of the beginning, out of the gate here, is that John Mark made some, some decisions in his own heart about what he wanted before really discussing it or praying about it with, with Paul. Now Paul right away says, gee, I don't think that's the wisest thing to do. Now, you know, Paul doesn't say, not on my life, I'm not taking that loser with me. He's a quitter and he's never going on a trip with me again. He didn't say anything like that. He just said, you know what? I'm not sure that's the wisest thing. And, and he lays out the reasons why. He says, because he deserted us in Pamphylia and he had not continued in the work with them. 
But we forget that when you went on a missions trip with Paul, you, you may not come back. You know, these guys got stoned, they got beaten. This wasn't like a missions trip from our church. We send them off and we rarely, I can't remember ever praying, oh Lord, if they don't come back, we look forward to seeing them in glory. May they live <laughs> courageously for you and if they have to suffer and die, if they're stoned, if they're beheaded, if they're beaten to death, all glory and praise go to you, Lord. And everyone says, amen, amen. No, that doesn't happen. You know, we pray, Lord, keep them comfortable. Let there be lots of salvations. And when they come home and make the report, God, stir up the church. You know, that's what we pray. But when you prayed and went on a trip with Paul, she said goodbye because you didn't know if you were coming home. Because at that point, we find Barnabas was the leader before that. And after a time, Paul, just the power of his leadership and the anointing of God, Barnabas took a step back and everyone recognized that Paul was to be the leader of these missionary ventures. And so Barnabas, once the leader, was now second in command and Paul was the leader. Their personalities couldn't have been more different. Barnabas is the encourager. He's the guy that's just like, oh, you can do it, you know, pick yourself up, dust off, let's go another round, come on, you know? He was the guy that you wanted to see when you failed because he was the guy that just would, would see the bright side of how God could use your failure uh, to advance the kingdom of God. Paul was the guy you didn't want to see when you failed. Paul, I can imagine on the trip was just like, come on, you wimps, you know? I mean, he didn't talk like that, I'm sure. Of course, uh, that's an English word, so I wouldn't have said that anyway. But, um, but he, I can imagine him, he's just like driving, you know, and, and everyone is <sighs> behind him because the guy goes night and day, probably doesn't sleep much, is ministering late into the night, you know, doesn't eat, doesn't drink, is just so passionate about the things of the kingdom. But we do know from the language that, uh, that Luke selected in writing this, uh, this, this work is that he used the word deserted. So this wasn't a blessing. This wasn't something that was planned and it wasn't something that either Barnabas or Mark approved of. So it ended up leading to an argument between Barnabas and Paul. And it said it was so sharp in its intensity that they actually parted company. Now you're getting a real behind the scenes look at what ministry is like. This is what it's really like. These are the behind the scene outtakes that people probably, you know, that were being ministered to and that were, uh, were enjoying the, the presentation of the gospel and the training and the church planting and all that, they didn't see all these behind the scene things going on. But by the spirit of God and by, the, by the, the wonder and revelation of Jesus Christ and the transparency of God's heart about the true nature of church, he reveals this to us for our instruction. And this disagreement means a provoking or a contention. Um, it, it's interesting because the same word is actually used in Acts before in chapter 15, just, this, just the beginning of this chapter in verse two. But instead of, of Barnabas and Paul having this dispute, they're having this dispute with the believers who were Pharisees who were requiring circumcision for salvation. And so Paul and Barnabas stood together in this great dispute against these, uh, these legalists, these Judaizers, who were promoting us a, a different gospel. But now, it's entered their own relationship. And they themselves are having this sharp dispute and it says that they parted company. It means to rend or tear, so it wasn't really that pleasant. And it seems that Barnabas wasn't willing to go without Mark and Paul wasn't willing to go with him. And they were at an impasse. Now there are a couple of things that I wanna just point out here briefly because we can learn from this. One of the first things that I'm looking at right now and I'm, I'm, I want you to consider is that I think a lot of this began because Barnabas 
made a decision and was determined to act on something before really consulting the other people on the team. And he got it in his head that they were gonna do this. Now I know that none of you ever do anything like that in marriage or in your families or in business or with friends or anything. You don't ever just come to a decision and then inform your spouse with the hope that they're gonna love this. And of course they have a different idea of how it should be done and then contention takes place and then this rending takes place and this parting of ways takes place. Well, part of the problem I see right from the beginning with Barnabas is that he made some decisions that affected other people around them and he came to a determined conclusion that that was going to be a very good thing. He wasn't intending to bring up any conflict, but because of his personality and his giftings and his calling, he thought, this will be great. Let's bring him back and give this young man a second chance. What I want to suggest to you is that as a lot of people have debated, who was right in this conflict? Was Paul right or was Barnabas right? And if I asked you, uh, and you were really to study this passage, and, and, I, and I said, and I've got it in your application notes, who would you have sided with? Most of us here would take a side. We might see the pros and cons of each position, but most of us would gravitate one way or the other. And I would suggest that you would gravitate based on your personality and on your own gifting mix. And what I mean by that is that some of you are very task-oriented. And if you're task-oriented, you probably would have sided with Paul because you've got to get the job done. And others of you are very merciful and you're very loving and kind and, you're, and people are more important to you than getting the job done. You'll never run over people to get the job done. You're a Barnabas. And so you'd probably say, of course, give the young guy, you're gonna ruin this kid's life, you know? And he's never gonna get a chance to redeem himself in the Bible, you know, which is important. You know, you wanna, when, you get, when you get nailed in the Bible, you wanna have a comeback, you know? And, um, and so I really believe that the truth is, is that both of these men were right. Both of these men were right. They weren't having a conflict because of pride or ambition or offended feelings. I believe that their differences of thinking on this was rooted in spiritual giftings, their outlook and their calling and their personality. Now, let me talk about Barnabas for a minute. You remember Barnabas, who was it that when no one would stand with Paul, who stood with Paul? Anybody remember? Barnabas. Barnabas was the one that put his arm around Paul when Paul got saved and said, this guy is genuine. There's something happening in him. Everyone else was afraid. No one else wanted to touch Paul with a 10-foot pole. So he puts his arm around Paul and, and he basically says, We're sta I'm standing with this guy. Now, I'm telling you, Barnabas was the kind of person every man and woman needs in your life, an encourager. Somebody when everyone else says, you're never gonna make it, you've blown it too many times, you're a loser, and, and Satan is whispering those same lies in your head and a Barnabas comes along and man, you just feel like that you can take life on again, that it's not over, that God isn't finished with you. And that's the way that Barnabas was. And so he's, he's thinking, I can hear the conversation, Paul, haven't you ever failed, Paul? Haven't you ever goofed up? Are you gonna let this young man live in this failure without giving him another chance? You see the giftings in this young man, Paul. Give this young man a second chance. And then Paul, the tactician, the strategist, the missions-minded church planter, he's got one thing on his mind, is that people are secondary, the mission is primary, we need to win people to Christ and we need to plant churches. He's the task-oriented driver in the group. 
And so he's pushing and driving hard and his contention, as he quotes Jesus, I'm sure, from Luke 9, and he says, any man that puts his hand to the plow and turns back is not fit for the kingdom of God. I can hear him quoting these kind of things. Uh, I, I think about Proverbs 25, 19. This is probably another one. Like a bad tooth or a lame foot is reliance on the unfaithful in times of trouble. You know, you can really find all kinds of scripture on both sides of this issue to defend your position. Well, what's interesting is that I believe that both of these men were right. Paul was right because the task was paramount, getting the gospel out, planting churches. And if you've ever tried to do something significant with somebody that flakes out on you, it's very disruptive. So I can really understand Paul's position. On the other hand, I failed in life and I needed guys like Barnabas and maybe you failed in life. And there was a Barnabas that came along in your life and said, you can make it. It's not over, it's not finished. God is not done. And suddenly you're buoyed up again. And so I really believe that both of these men were right, but they, they were looking at the exact same information, but from different perspectives, with different giftings, different callings, and different personalities. Here's something I wanna share with you. Is that oftentimes I think that uh, many of our conflicts that we have in our marriages, or in our home life, or with our children, or with other brothers or sisters, or even in the church, or in your business, or in your community, so often come because we are so determined. First of all, we make the mistake of predetermining our decision before we've included other people in the process. Secondly, uh, we only see it from our perspective. I remember in seminary, when I was a younger man, honest, I, I really thought that I was right about everything. I mean, I had that perspective that when I bump up against somebody else that had a completely different perspective, I'm thinking, what's wrong with them? You know, I need to educate them. I need to, I need to somehow persuade them and, and, and help them understand my perspective. And then one day it dawned on me, because I had a really good friend, that we were just like Paul and Barnabas. We were complete opposites. And suddenly it dawned on me as we were having another discussion about another issue that we never agreed on anything. And finally it dawned on me and I said, you know what? I think I figured this out our giftings and calling and personalities are so different that we both are seeing it correctly but from a different perspective. And suddenly our relationship that had been so wonderful and challenging now became blended in such a way that we could appreciate and value each other and I began to learn from him and he began to learn from me. And I, and I want to encourage you that I think a lot of times in our, in our own relationships and in ministry and everything else is that, you know, we have an idea. Some of you have had ideas for church or ministry. I've got this great idea. You've already determined in your mind how it's going to be, what it's going to look like and everything else. And then somebody else says, I don't, that's not going to work, you know? And, and we're like, we get offended and then we get into this debate and we get into this argument and then I'm leaving. I'm not going to stay here. I'm going to, I'm, I'm, I'm not talking to you. That's it. You know, we don't say it out loud, but that's kind of what happens. But the reality is, is that I wanna, I wanna challenge you that we're getting a behind the scenes look at two very godly, devoted, committed men to the kingdom of God. And yet they bumped heads because God had gifted them differently and they couldn't see it at the time. Later, I believe that they would. Well, so both of these men are right. Now I wanna tell you that both of these men, I would say, may have been wrong. I think the first way they may have been wrong is that we don't find any prayer taking place in this text over this conflict. Now, every time you remember, as we've been going through the book of Acts, we find them praying, they're ministering to the Lord, the Holy Spirit tells them what to do next. You know, They're ministering to the Lord and the Holy Spirit sets apart Paul and Barnabas. They're ministering to the Lord, they're praying and God directs them and they said it seems good to the Holy Spirit and good to us to do this and it's always us. Now suddenly we find these two men with their own ideas and they don't pray. 
And then they end up in this large conflict. And I want to suggest to you that I think one of the errors that they may have made, they may have prayed, but it's not here in the text for us, is that we have no record that these men took time to pray for God's counsel. Second thing that I want to note here is that I don't believe sharp contention is of God. I don't believe this kind of, of confrontation that results from two different positions getting heated like this is necessarily from the Lord. James tells us in James 4 verse 1, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but don't get it. Isn't that, aren't most of our conflicts over things like that? He, say, he goes on to say, you kill and covet, but cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. Listen to this. You do not have because you do not ask God. And it gets us back to that first point. They may have failed to spend time in prayer. The third thing that I think uh, was a problem here that they may have been wrong in is the mandate that Jesus gives in Matthew chapter five to resolve conflicts quickly. It tells us in that text in verse 23, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, first go and be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. In other words, uh, in other words what Jesus is saying is that it's so important to fellowship with God that God says, I want you to first correct things with your brother before you come and worship me or have fellowship with me because God is in essence saying, I'm discomforted by the contention and by the lack of reconciliation, which makes it hard for God to have fellowship with us, which basically what he's saying is, I'm gonna just send the Holy Spirit. You're just gonna be convicted during this time. And I don't want you to be convicted. I want you to come clean, so I want you to take care of it. But we find that this actually, this contentious relationship resulted in a parting of ways and it took, we don't know how long, possibly years for them to finally be reconciled and that does happen and we'll talk about that. But um, we find that the result is in verse 39 is that Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus and Paul chose Silas and left for Syria and Cilicia. Now Silas was one of the ones that had been recommended by the, by the council in Jerusalem to go back with Paul and Barnabas to Antioch to present the letter and to personally present their uh, decision that salvation was by faith alone. He was a respected leader. The Bible tells us that he was a prophet. He was a Roman citizen and he uh, uh, became a, a ministry partner with Paul. Now, I guess I'm gonna repeat myself here but I wanna go back to this whole issue of this behind the scenes look at some of this dilemma that these two men found themselves in and apply it to us. I would be surprised if there aren't quite a few of us here that have some sort of an unresolved conflict in our life. Might be with a spouse, you might have even had a conflict on the way here. Uh, it might be with your children. It might be with um, a coworker. It might even be with someone in the church. I don't know where it is. It might be extended family, it might be your parents. But what I can learn from this and what I'm trying to apply to my own life that I wanna share with you is the first thing that we need to do is to do what the, at least we don't have record in, in the text that the disciples did, they didn't pray. We need to pray. We need to get back to where we sense the, the spirit leading our life instead of our own determined decisions leading our life. And that means fasting if necessary. That means crying out. That means even getting together with the person and says, I know we're in conflict and I know we can't resolve it and every time we talk about it, we fight. Can we just pray? Let's not even work at resolving it. Let's just get before God and cry out for help. Let's seek his counsel. Let's seek his will and his purpose. And then whatever he tells us to do, we're in agreement that we'll follow. The other thing I wanna suggest to you is, is it possible you're both right? Looking at this 
situation from different giftings and different calling and different personalities and that God has actually put that different perspective in your life to help you grow and to, uh, to advance God's purposes more aggressively in your life rather than holding you back. And I have to tell you, honestly, as a young, as a young married man, I could not figure out why my wife could not understand my perspective on everything. I remember one time, and I've, I've told this story before, but our, our first uh, major fight was over towels. You know, it's always the important things. Uh, we'd gotten married and gotten all these different towels from different people, you know, from this store, that store. They're all mismatched and everything. We took them all back. We decided to take them back and then to go get a, a set of towels somewhere that, uh, you know, that would be all, you know, the same color, the same brand and all that. And so we went to the store. I mean, this is, a, I think it was like a Kmart or something like that. We were living big. We, were, we got the Kmart towels and we we're looking at what we can afford and everything. And, and I'm over in the brown towel section and the tans and the, the earth tones. And she's over in the girl section, uh, you know, the mauves and the fuchsias and the pinks and everything. And I'm saying, what are you doing over there? I'm looking at towels. No, you're not. <laughs> I'm not drying off in a pink towel. You're not going to get me in an in a ocean spray sea green thing, you know? Brown or light tan or black is what I, you know? I just use that to illustrate that, you know, we were so different. And at first, I thought she was wrong about all these things. And now I'm just realizing, my goodness, the Lord put this woman in my life to teach me so many things and to bring a different perspective, not just on towel color and selection, but on everything in life. And, and where once I fought with her about little things like that, now I'm just like, she's a genius. You know, God has put her in my life to advance his cause. Tell me what you have to think. And sometimes I, you know, I'm like, you know, I'm holding myself back because I've already got a plan in place and I'm remembering texts like this and saying, no, I must not go there. If I'm going to benefit from the, the fullness of what God has brought into my life in terms of my wife and vice versa, I need to be willing to, to understand that we may both be right but coming from a different perspective with different giftings and different callings. And so I wanna suggest that to you. Is it possible that the person you have a conflict with, that there might be a, a, a possibility that you're both right, but coming at this from very different perspectives, callings, and giftings. And the third thing I wanna to suggest to you, because we're gonna look at the incredible advancement of God's kingdom that takes place through this conflict, is it possible that even through the conflict that God sovereignly is taking that conflict and is going to advance his purposes in ways that you never in your wildest dreams could have imagined. And because you know the faithfulness of God, and we're gonna see it in this text, you can begin by faith to praise him even for the conflict and put a blessing on that person that you have, you've had a difference with because you know that God is even using that difference to open up new horizons and new options and new uh, opportunities. Well, it tells us that as these men separated, that they were commended by the brothers in the grace of the Lord. And, and Paul and uh, Silas went to Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches, which we find so op often is what, uh, what happened with Paul and uh, the other disciples as they went from church to church. Now, I wanna take a minute and I, I wanna fast forward and look back on this event now and see the things that came as a result of this heated conflict that parted two very, very close friends. The first thing I wanna point out is that now we don't have one mission team, but we have two very powerful mission teams going out. That right out of the gate, they're, they're multiplying their efforts. I've seen so many churches start this way. I, I think it's a glorious thing when God starts a church when it's planned out and everybody's on it and the church prays and sends them off and supports them for a year with money and go visits the church and everything. But that's not how most churches get planted. Most churches get planted because the associate pastor says, 
I don't, I can't be into this guy's leadership anymore. I can't handle this, you know. He sees things so differently than me and I have different vision and different views and they separate and it's, a, it's, it's somewhat devastating to the church and everybody gets all, takes sides and everything but they almost always, they look back on it, you know, a, even just a few years later and they see the hand of God in it. You're not going anywhere right now, are you, Bruce? Any, any? <laughs> Bruce is a, a total gift. Uh, but he doesn't like me to talk about that, so I won't. <laughs> anyway, but right away, we've got the, this multiplication that takes place out of a very difficult circumstance. The second thing is that John Mark does get restored. Barnabas's call was right, and he took him, and, and uh, John Mark uh, becomes a companion of Paul later on in their ministry. He becomes very fruitful in ministry, very powerful in ministry, and he wrote the Gospel of Mark. This is the same Mark. Can you imagine if they gave up on this guy? But God used this man. The third thing that happened is that Silas and Timothy and Luke, who were not directly involved in missionary ministry, now became involved. We know that Silas was very uh, instrumental in ministry with Paul for many years. Uh, he was a part of planting new churches through their collective efforts. Timothy was raised up as a pastor. And of course, Luke authored the Gospel of Luke and he was brought on board through these missionary trips. The, the book of Acts may not have ever been written. Luke was the one that wrote it. Paul brought him along. That's how Luke had all this information and was a first-hand uh, eyewitness of these events that took place. I guess my point in all this that I wanna share with you is that when we're in the midst of a conflict, it's so easy to see the negative part of it. When something's not going how we want it to, we can only see that it's, uh, something's bad happening and somebody's impeding us and somebody's hindering some good thing that we think needs to happen. But the reality is, is that when we look back at this, these two men, godly, godly servants of God, with nothing on their hearts but the advancement of the purposes of God had a parting of the ways, but it resulted in the expansion and advancement of the kingdom of God. Well, it tells us in, in uh, chapter six, verse one, as we continue, that Paul came to Derby and Lystra where he met Timothy. Timothy was a, a native of Lystra. His mother and grandmother were, were strong believers. The Bible tells us in, in, uh, in Timothy that he was raised up from his earliest youth uh, on the scriptures and being trained by his mother and grandmother who were very faithful women. We know that, uh, that he was very affected by Paul's first missionary journey to Lystra where the stoning took place, Lystra and Derby, and he saw this happen and you know, he's just a young man and he's just like, you know, he's watching this powerful, courageous man, Paul, proclaim the gospel. And on the second round, he's like, you know, Paul sees something in this man and uh, he recognizes him first as a disciple and uh, also his mother, the Bible tells us, was a Jewish believer and his father was a Greek. And the only reason that that, that information is given to us is gonna have an effect on this whole issue of circumcision because when a, when a person, like in the case of, of Timothy, had mixed marriage, parentage, what happened is that he would be considered a Jew but he would be considered an apostate Jew because uh, of his father being a Greek. And because of that, um, Timothy had never been circumcised. And so he, wasn't, he was looked down on. He had no access to the temple, uh, to the culture of the Jewish people. He was kind of an outsider, even though he was technically a Jew. But the Bible also tells us that he was spoken well of by the brothers and sisters in Lystra and Iconium. And, you know, I, I want to encourage you that I was talking with some, some friends this morning about this whole issue of, of uh, the fishbowl on this island. 
And uh, some people don't like it, and I love it. I think what an awesome thing, because everywhere you go, you're giving testimony even when you're not talking, because everybody watches everything you guys do. They know you in the community, and they watch you. And, and what the Bible says is that Timothy was the kind of man that no matter where he went in the community of Lystra, people had high regard for him because of his godly character, because of the way he conducted himself and everything he did, and because of his love for God. And for these reasons, it says that the brothers in Lystra and Iconium looked up to him and regarded him highly. Now remember, this is a young man. He's probably still in his teens. So he, he has older men that look to him and say, man, that guy is a godly, godly young man. May God say, uh, give us the opportunity to have people in the community view us that way, that they don't see us doing things that are contradictory to the word of God, but they see us wherever we go, under whatever pressure we're facing, whatever circumstances that we find ourselves in, that nothing but Jesus comes out. And when we fail in those moments, that nothing but a biblical response comes out of repentance and confession. We don't have to be perfect, but when we goof it up, we have to be biblical in modeling how we correct a situation. That can be as instructive as getting everything right. And Timothy was a man like that. Now, it says in verse three that Paul wanted to take Timothy along on this second missionary journey. Now, Paul's plan and intention with this missionary journey was to basically do the very same circuit that they did on the first missionary journey. That was his intention. Didn't really have any plans to do much more than that. Just wanted to go back and strengthen the churches where he had done ministry. Well, we find that in order to do that, he wanted to take Timothy along on this journey since he had lost the company of Barnabas. And the text tells us that he circumcised Timothy. Now, evidently, Paul did this himself. He didn't hand this off to some doctor. He said, go make an appointment, Timothy, and get circumcised. Now, Paul was qualified and certified to do it because that's one of the, the, uh, the things that Pharisees had to know how to do was how to circumcise uh, men to bring them into, the, into that covenant relationship as a Jew. And, um, you know, I, I don't ever want to hear anybody complain about the, the, the hurdles that you have to go through in getting your shots uh, to go on a missions trip because this takes it a, little, a few steps farther than that. And I guess, uh, you know, I, it's, I don't know how much more intimate you can be, but they became friends, obviously, on this occasion. And, um, and Paul... Paul circumcised Timothy, and it tells us why, because, the Jews, uh, of, because of the Jews who lived in that area and because they knew that his father was a Greek, which gets us back to the point I was making earlier, is that Paul needed to be able to take Timothy with him. But for that to happen, to go into the temple, to go in and speak to the Jews, this circumcision needed to take place. Now, we just finished last week talking about how Paul was adamant. I mean, the guy was like tooth and toenail fighting for sola fide, that it's not faith plus circumcision. Nobody needs to be circumcised to become a believer in Jesus Christ. And yet, behind the scenes, he's circumcising Timothy. Doesn't that seem a little contradictory to you? Well, there's a reason for it. In the first case, when it came to the church in Antioch, the Pharisees were saying that these Gentile converts had to be circumcised in order to be saved. And Paul said, no, that's another gospel. But in Timothy's case, it was an issue of removing barriers for the gospel. Nobody was saying Timothy had to be circumcised to be saved. But this circumcision issue and his Greek parentage with his father, Paul knew was gonna be an issue. It was an unnecessary hurdle that simply by circumcising Timothy would resolve the issue. It would never come up because somebody would say, he's not, he's not circumcised. Yes, he is. I did it myself. He's circumcised. And, and the discussion is over and he's able to do ministry. 
And so Paul was not at all backing down from this issue of salvation by faith alone. He was simply, for expediency reasons, removing unnecessary barriers to ministry. He basically says the same thing in 1 Corinthians 9, uh, verses 19. He says, though I am free and belong to no man, I make myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jew, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those who are under the law. I become all things to all men, so that by all possible means, I might save some. And so, Timothy was circumcised. Verse four, they were traveling uh, from town to town delivering the decision reached by the Jerusalem leaders and that decision was very simple, that Gentile converts did not need to be circumcised to become a Jew in order to then become a Messianic Jew. That there was a simple step, a, a total outrageous, gnarly pagan could go from that condition and simply believe the message of Jesus Christ and step into eternal life and step into the kingdom, and step into adoption as God's son or daughter, and that was all that was necessary. And so they took that message, and of course the churches rejoiced everywhere they went. And the Bible tells us in verse five that Paul and Timothy's ministry bore good fruit. The churches were strengthened in the faith. You'll remember from our study, episterizo, it means to prop up. And I use the illustration of my, my young son, Michael. Uh, they went hiking up in the hills behind our house and they found these beautiful orchid plants, but they're on these little spindly uh, stems and, and they can't even hold themselves up. And you know, th- out in the wild, they, they, they bend down in the wind all the way to the ground, but they bounce back because they have a, 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 an established root system. But because there was no established root system when my son dug these up and brought them home and planted them in the backyard, he put little stakes and tied them on uh, to these stakes so that these little spindly orchids could begin to develop a root system. And until that time took place, these, uh, these, these chopsticks that he tied them to became the stabilizing factor until the root system could develop. And I can't think of a better picture of what discipleship is because that's what, the, what Paul and, and Timothy were doing. They were going around and they were propping up these brand new Christians who hadn't yet developed this root system in their Christian life. And, and so Paul says, tie on to me. Timothy, tie on to me. And that's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11.1. 1. He says, it says, follow me as I follow Christ. That's what discipling is. And I challenged you last week and I'm gonna do it again right now. Who is tied on to you? And who are you tied on to? Who is stronger than you and the Lord that you're tied onto that is helping you establish and sink your spiritual roots deeper than they are right now? And who have you allowed to come close enough to your life to tie onto you until they are strong enough in their root system to then have someone tie onto them? That's the whole multiplication process that discipleship teaches. And I want to encourage you to take a step and open your life and find out what's lacking in the spiritual life of someone around you and let them tie on. And if you're lacking in some way, then tie on to someone who's stronger than you that you might grow and become strong in the Lord so that you can bear fruit. Well, it tells us that as they strengthen the churches that the churches grew daily in number. And I really like this. Uh, no gimmicks, no uh, big you know, conferences that Paul and Timothy have to go to to learn how to have a, a, a great church. They don't have to listen and sit under, you know, get the 20 points in the booklet and the $250 manual. They don't need any of that. What they need to do is they need to 
strengthen the church, preach the word, raise up leaders, and God blesses and brings the increase. And that's one of the things that I wanna, I wanna encourage you about your work here in this church because God is bringing the increase. We don't have any gimmicks. We're just teaching the word. We're loving each other. We're making disciples. We're letting each other tie onto each other and, and we're helping strengthen one another in our faith and lo and behold, God is bringing the increase. It's just that simple. Such a simple method that God has. And uh, the, I guess the, the bottom line and the principle is, is that well-taught and properly discipled churches and churches where the people, the, the, the members of the church are participating in, a, in their walk with God, they grow. That's just the way it is. Well, I wanna finish up in verse six and seven uh, through 10, and I'll have to go through this fairly quickly, but it's another behind the scenes look at how God guides our life by his Holy Spirit. Because in verse six and seven, it says Paul and his companions wanted to preach in Asia, which is modern day Turkey, and they wanted to go to Bithynia, which is also in modern day Turkey, and it was an expansion of their initial loop of this route that they were going on to go over uh, the first missionary journey again. And as they went out on this missionary journey, Paul wanted to reach out just a little further and plant some more churches. And the Holy Spirit said, no. Well, how did that happen? Well, it might have been a word of prophecy. It might have been a vision. Uh, it could have happened through any number of circumstances or just even consensus of the group. But the fact is, is that they were told no. Now, what, I, what I'm so encouraged by, especially as we consider Barnabas earlier, who had made a decision on what he wanted to do, and he was just determined to do it, as we find now Paul, in this situation, we discover him immediately responding and obeying the command of the Holy Spirit not to go do something he wanted to do. And I just wanna ask you a very simple question. How do you respond when God says no? It's those predetermined plans that we've got that so often get us in trouble. But what about when you read the word and something you're doing doesn't line up with scripture? Do you just kind of power through and try to shove it to the back of your head? Mm, I don't hear anything. I can't hear anything. I can't hear you, you know? Or, or do you respond? What happens when someone in your life comes and confronts you and says, what you're doing is not right. It's not biblical. It's not ethical. It's not moral. It's not scriptural. How do you respond? That's, I love Paul. He just immediately stopped and wouldn't go anywhere, wouldn't go to those areas. But they did go on to Troas, where God evidently blessed. And during that time, Paul had a vision of a man in Macedonia begging him to come over and help them, which was in Europe. So we're going from modern-day Turkey, if you're looking on a map, modern-day Turkey, now they're gonna, a, a man in Macedonia, which is in modern-day Europe, is, is calling him to come. And I just kinda wanna finish with a, with a few short thoughts on this, is that, Paul had a plan in place that was fairly modest. He was just gonna go back. I mean, it was, it was groundbreaking, but it was modest. He was gonna go back and cover just Turkey again. And God says, no, I don't want you to cover Turkey. And I don't want you to go beyond where you are going into more regions of Turkey. And, and Paul could have been like, why? But he didn't, he simply obeyed. And God says, the reason is, and he didn't know for a few days or maybe a week or two, but the reason is, is that I wanna send you to Europe. I'm gonna give you a whole nother continent, Paul, to win for the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, I found that God is that way. When we're willing to allow God to say no to us and obey it immediately, oftentimes God has something so much better. And I just wanna share just a short story. 
because, and most of you know this, but when I was in New York, church planting in New York, I'd been in a Baptist church as an associate pastor and the truth was is that I didn't, you know, God was just making it clear. I had very different giftings than the senior pastor and, and I asked him, it was a blessed leaving and we went and started another church under their support and encouragement and I, it, I couldn't attract flies. I mean, it was, I just, I don't know what it was. It was just like, no, no, no. It was my idea. I thought it was a great idea uh, but I, the honest truth is I kind of wanted to get out of the church I was in. It wasn't because God put this vision on my heart. I was just thinking, I can't handle this anymore. It was a 200-year-old Baptist church and nobody wanted to move or do anything. And I just couldn't stay. And so we decided that we were gonna plant a church, but as we were planting it, this, this family would come and that family would come and sometimes we'd have 15 people, sometimes 20 and sometimes like three. And I just couldn't get any traction and I thought, God, what have I done wrong? What, what, you know, what are you doing? And, and it took us about a year before God made it clear and he, and he wanted to call us to Kauai, which in my mind was like, that's worse, you know? You're gonna take me out of a, a known situation and, and they wanted me to come to a church where there are like 15 people that, that were all, they'd been struggling, it was a struggling church. They were like, should we close the doors or shouldn't we close the doors? Should we close the doors? And they, they all, there was disagreement among them and about what should happen and their feelings were hurt. It was a mess and I'm thinking, you want me to go from people that like us and that like each other, small as it is, to a group of people that don't know me and don't really get along that well together. And I'm thinking, I'm not sure I really want to do that, you know? And, uh, and I got online and I saw there's like 60 churches on the island and I thought there's 60,000 people. They don't need another church. They certainly don't need me there. And uh, I really didn't want to come to Kauai. We grew up on Oahu and we were enjoying the mainland and all to say that, that I wanted to say no to God, but when God said, Bob, don't look at what man looks at and I want you to come, that's, he, that's all he said. And right there I made a decision because I've, I've seen how God works. I just said, yes, we'll come. My wife didn't want to come. She said, yes, she was born and raised on Oahu. We're, we're local, but we just didn't want to come here. I, not any particular reason. It's not because of any of you or anything, but it was just, I had other ideas. I had another plan. You know what it's like. You got a plan in your mind and, you, and you, you're not ready to move from it. But God had a plan. And I thought, here's the honest truth. I thought, God, what can you possibly do on Kauai? I really thought he was punishing me. I thought I'd done something wrong. I thought, you know, Lord, what, where, what did I do? What, 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 what? And now here we are. And I'm thinking, who would have ever guessed that God would be doing all the things he's doing? But this is the way that God works. Well, the, the good news is that the Bible tells us that Paul immediately obeyed and responded. And the Bible says in Psalm 116.60, I will hasten and not delay to obey your commands. And that brings me to the final question I'll ask you, is how quick are you to obey when God says, move? How quick are you to obey when God puts something proactive on your heart to do? We've already talked about when he says no, it's so important to respond to that, but it's equally important to say yes when he gives you a mission. I wanna be a man that walks in these truths. We have this behind the scene, these outtakes of what's happening on this missions trip and they're there for our benefit. I pray that you would apply these simple principles and God has some wonderful things ahead for us. Let's say yes to him when he moves us forward and when he says no, let's rejoice, recognizing that that's just as much God's direction as when he proactively guides us in a forward advancing method. I wanna follow God, do you guys wanna do it? I know, I know your heart. We're, God has got some great things ahead of us 
He's gonna do it in your marriage. He's gonna do it in your family. Put into practice these simple things that we've talked about this morning and I know that God will bless. Father, we thank you for this time and for your word. Lord, it's such a, a privilege to learn and to have this behind the scenes understanding of some of the challenges that accompanied ministry with Paul and Barnabas. Thank you for these men. Teach us, instruct us, and may we apply these truths that we have gleaned from this passage this morning. And may you advance your kingdom. And God, we confess our sins for the times that we have powered ahead when you've said no. And we also confess our sin when we have failed to act when you have said move. God, may you find in us hearts that are quick to obey. May we be those that, like the psalmist said, I run in the path of your commands, for you have set my heart free. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.